1: Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. Today we are continuing on with our Frequently Asked Question episodes and we'll be talking about behavior. This is probably the most highly anticipated of the Frequently Asked Question episode because these are the questions that I get the most. I by far get the most questions on behavior. This is the topic I am asked to talk about the most. These are the things I get the most comments on. These are really the podcast episodes that I've done the most of are all on behavior. And I totally get it. When it comes to challenging behavior, this very quickly takes top priority. Your lesson plans, centers, staff training, all of that seems to kind of go out the window because this very pressing issue of managing these challenging behaviors and supporting these students just takes up all of your attention. So I understand why this is the most common and wanted thing to talk about. Now, I easily could have made a Frequently Asked Question episode about behavior like three hours long because I get so many behavior questions, but I summarize them into some common themes that I get questions about, and then I'm going to always refer back to answer number one because this is basically my most common answer I give. So let's start off with question number one. So I really often get questions about specific behaviors and how to approach them. So a question could be like, hey, I have a student that's spitting, what should I do? I have a student that's being aggressive towards peers, what should I do? What's a good replacement behavior for scratching? The student is scratching all the time. What's a replacement behavior for that? And with all of these types of questions, anything that touches on a specific behavior, my answer is going to consistently be, do an FBA, do a functional behavior assessment and figure out what's going on without knowing that child, without knowing the context, without knowing the circumstances, without knowing the setting events, without knowing other contributing factors, I cannot answer that question. And this isn't an easy out for me. It's not like, oh, I just don't want to tell you what to do about hitting or spitting. I'm not trying to like gatekeep magic secrets here. It's that hitting can be for so many different reasons, scratching, spitting, Aggression, all of these behaviors can occur for so many different reasons. And if we don't know why the behavior is occurring, we will not know how to respond. When I do a full day on behavior change, I spend the first hour of the morning talking about reinforcement. And then I spend about the next two hours talking about an FBA, a functional behavior assessment. I don't even get to strategies for approaching that problem behavior until after lunch and that's on purpose because if we don't do our foundations if we don't figure out what's going on we're not going to know what those strategies are and I, I honestly try to like scare teachers a little bit about the FBA and saying hey if you skip this piece if you jumped right to strategies you may be unintentionally picking a strategy that makes the problem behavior worse I mean if that doesn't scare you I don't know what does. So that's going to be my common answer. And in some of the questions that I talk about later in this episode, I'm going to be like, hey, refer back to answer one, because that's where it all starts is why is this behavior happening? That's what we have to figure out. And if you're like, oh, my God, I know I should know how to do an FBA or my FBAs don't give me this information. What? How do I do this? I want to refer you to our positive behavior change course. So the positive behavior change course is basically an on-demand version of the behavior workshop that I do live probably twice a week throughout the year because I said it's the most highly requested session. And what I love about this course is that you can break it up into small pieces. You can watch a little bit and come back to it. So I'm going to link our positive behavior change course, which is available anytime in the show notes. And I'm also going to link our free webinar on reinforcement because that's a really important piece of this puzzle. So those two tools I'm going to link in the show notes. So following an FBA the next piece is the starve it and replace it framework and this is what I teach in depth in detail in the positive behavior change course. The starve it and replace it framework is basically making the problem behavior not work or not work as well and at the very very same time replacing it with a positive pro-social communicative behavior. The replacement behavior is the secret sauce to behavior change. You will not have long-lasting generalized behavior change if you don't have a replacement behavior. And not only do you need a replacement behavior, you have to teach and get buy-in for that replacement behavior. And that is honestly by far the thing that I see missing the most In behavior plans, in discussions with teachers and parents, there is not always a replacement behavior. And if there is a replacement behavior, it maybe is not taught to fidelity. And that's the piece that can really be the game changer. All right. I mean, really, I feel like in five minutes, I answered every frequently asked question I get about behavior. No, just kidding. We'll do some more. But that really, that answer kind of goes to everything. Do an FBA, figure out what's going on, and then starve it and replace it. Another question I've been getting a lot, which this is a really good question, is how to handle situations where it's really challenging to take away a preferred item. So let's say the iPad, you know, and that is often an example that's used. You know, when when taking away the iPad, it's really challenging. This can evoke some really extreme behaviors. What should we do then? And we've all seen that situation, right? That like, oh, okay, you got five minutes on the iPad and you go to get the iPad back and they won't give it back and it becomes like a power struggle and it's a mess, right? So a few suggestions and I want to first start off with, the iPad situation in particular because I see this very often as the problem reinforcer here. So when it comes to an iPad and things like YouTube or Netflix, I prefer to find a natural break in iPad usage versus just a timed break so like hey you get five minutes the buzzer goes off I get the iPad because what often happens is that we interrupt our students in the middle of a video in the middle of a game and that can of course cause some frustration I mean I always think of it like imagine if someone were to turn off Real Housewives when they were five minutes left like, I'd be irritated. The last five minutes are always the best, you guys. Come on. That's where all the drama happens. I want to watch the last five minutes and I got to see scenes for next week. Like, I know that's coming. So if someone turned off my episode right before that, I would be irritated So that's kind of the equivalent example there is if you just grab the iPad or ask for the iPad back in the middle of an episode, that could cause a problem. So if you have a five-minute iPad break, 10-minute iPad break, maybe when that timer goes off, you go sit near the student and you wait for the video to finish. You wait for them to switch videos. I know sometimes kids just don't watch a video to completion. They just pop around videos a lot. So when they go to pop around to the next video, then we use that as the as the break, you know, as like, okay, it's all done. So thinking about a natural break when it comes to things like videos and games, like, hey, this is the last video, showing that, you know, the scroll on the bottom, how much is left when it gets to here, we're all done, using that as the cue as opposed to a timer or even allotting, hey, you can watch one video if they always watch the same one. Some other suggestions when having this struggle with a student, I think you can also use some some waiting cues and show when time is about to be up. We have a lot of cool time and waiting visuals that we always share on Instagram people love where they're different like, uh, you know, a stoplight where it's like, hey, we're at the yellow, meaning it's almost time to take it. There are some really cool timers that will change colors as we get closer to it or a visual timer where that kind of scroll is shortening as the time is almost up. That can kind of lessen the surprise factor of the reinforcer time being over. Other ideas, Um, I've seen this done really successfully with students where you practice handing over the the iPad or the reinforcer before they get it. So let's say we're gonna do slime and slime sometimes is a problem giving it back because it's a high powered reinforcer. Before they get to play slime, they practice handing it back to the teacher a few times. And then I think one of my favorite ideas here is that giving back the reinforcer item is kind of the first way that they earn it again. So whether you're using some type of token economy or something like that, that hey, let give me iPad and you're going to get your first token for earning your next iPad break. And we can also set this up successfully by going from that highly preferred activity to a medium preferred activity. So I'm not, I don't want to go from something I love doing to something I hate doing, right? If I have to turn off my trashy reality shows to go fold laundry, that's going to be a hard, hard thing for me to do, right? But if I'm turning off my trashy reality shows because I'm going out to dinner with my friends, oh, I'm going to something that I also like doing, right? Or I'm going to go cook dinner. I enjoy cooking dinner. Thinking about what are some medium preferred activities that you can transition to instead of going right to something that may be a little bit more challenging or more aversive. So let's stick with this iPad example. Let's say we were playing iPad iPad time is over, well, now we're going to go play a game or we're going to go bounce on the trampoline or we're going to go for a walk and get a drink of water. So we're doing something that is still reinforcing, still fun before we maybe transition into something that is more challenging. So those are some suggestions that have worked really well for me. Another question I've been getting a lot recently is, is there a control function of behavior? So when I teach functions of behavior, I teach it in two ways. Behaviors are sensory, escape, attention, tangible, and those combinations. The other way we can look at behavior is that behavior is to get access to something or to get out of or away from something. So we're getting access to attention, to sensory input, to some type of toy or activity versus getting out of or away from that attention, getting out of an activity, things like that. So those are two perspectives to take when looking at functions of behavior. When teaching this, I sometimes get asked, hey, well, what about control? You know, we have sensory, we have escape, we have attention, we have tangible. My kid has a little bit of all of that. It seems like they just want to control. They just want to be the one in charge. They want to make those choices. They want to be the one saying what to do. They basically don't want to do anything I ask them to do. Now, to me, control really looks like a a function that involves all of them, right? It's a little bit sensory, it seems a little bit escape, a little bit of tension. And oftentimes behaviors do fall in multiple functions. I think the idea of thinking of behaviors just as attention seeking or just as escape maintained is really limiting. We use the same responses for multiple things. I scroll on social media to escape doing the household chores I need to get done. I also scroll on social media to find friends that I want to talk to and post on their reels and their pictures, cute kids, looks great. That's an attention-seeking behavior, right? I'm commenting on my friend's picture and that's to get attention, right? So we engage in behavior that's multiply controlled all the time. And I think looking at behaviors as just one function will be really limiting. So control really is just like a multiply controlled behavior to use some ABA nerdy language here. When we have these types of scenarios with kids that just seem to want to do whatever they want to do and don't want to do anything you want to do it, You want to do my number one approach is choice. Give them so many choices. To me this like huge urge for control often communicates that they're feeling a lack of control. And with those kids I want to give them their control back. So give them control. Give them choices. Where do you want to sit? What color pencil do you want to use? Do you want to use purple or do you want to use green? Do you want to sit on the carpet or the chair? Do you want to do language arts first or math first? Do you want to do the odds or the evens? Do you want to work with me or Miss Thomas? Give so many choices. Some of our kids have very little control about their day and their life. And that must probably be kind of frustrating, right? Like you and I like being in control. Control is not a bad thing. So give that student control. And in doing so, you may have to give up a little bit of your own control, right? If you're like, well, they can't do their work in green pen. Yes, they can. Who cares, right? So give those choices. Give that control back to that student. All right, next question. How do we handle defiance? So I think this goes really nicely with this control question that, you know, we don't we want to approach defiance from the same perspective we talked about with question number one, what is this behavior communicating? And right off the bat, if we think about what defiance typically looks like, a stereotypical example of defiance, there's, it's typically communicating wanting that attention, but also that control piece. I think that would fall fall along really nicely with our previous answer. With defiance, there's some type of lack of control and that we want to again give students appropriate ways to control what's around them and defiance often will escalate to then aggression or a meltdown or things like that so we want to really identify that as a precursor for what could be a bigger meltdown Offer coping strategies, offer choices, and make sure that we are proactively preventing this. Because sometimes when defiance does happen, we're stuck then in a power struggle, right? We've set a boundary, they've pushed that boundary, and now we're both trying to hold tight on our end of that imaginary rope, right? Like we're playing tug of war. And in the power struggle, my advice is drop the rope. Walk away. You're not going to win the power struggle. I've done some reels on this recently on Instagram. Um, People don't always like this, but guess what? We don't win the power struggle. We as adults, we don't, I promise you. And even if you feel like you quote unquote won, you didn't. You did not teach, you did not build rapport, you did not build trust you probably broke down those things. When we're in a power struggle, we're all in a heightened emotional state and we don't learn in a heightened emotional state. So with anything with defiance here, we want to reel back pretty quickly and we want to provide opportunities for that student to be in control so they don't have to demonstrate that defiance, give coping strategies so it doesn't escalate to a meltdown situation and then look at how we can proactively prevent this in the future. I got this question just the other day, and I was happy to include this because I think this is a great discussion. So someone asked, how do you handle parents who don't stand firm with consequences for a targeted negative behavior? For example, giving in once boundaries have been set, and not following through on a consequence. And I, I laughed when I read this because I probably within the last hour had, I had been that parent myself, you guys, like. I was that parent like maybe they were talking about me um, I was a BCBA before I had kids and having my own kids was a truly humbling moment as a BCBA and as a teacher because I realized how extraordinarily hard it is to follow some expectations and guys let me be real honest with you here on the podcast I mean we're all friends I do not always follow my own advice. Like I give a lot, of, a lot of advice, right? I got a podcast. I do workshops and create courses. I know the right answer in my head. But in reality, on a busy Tuesday night where I'm tired, we have to get dinner on the table, bedtimes are approaching, everyone's grouchy. Do I give in and not follow through on the boundaries I've set because I'm burnt out? Oh my gosh, you better believe it. Do I unintentionally or sometimes maybe intentionally use bribery over reinforcement? Yes. Yes, I do. Because there are so many competing contingencies for parents. So to be behavior analytic about it, competing contingencies are things that are getting in the way of what we want to do, right? We want to follow the behavior plan. We want to follow through on boundaries we set. Yes. But what competes with that? Our exhaustion, the fact that there's other kids, the fact that meals have to be made, we have to go to work, the bus is coming, we have to go to school on time. There's other things that get in the way of that. And it's easier said than done to do some of these things. So I think, yes, is that ideal that, you know, we can't follow through on a behavior plan? No. But I think as behavior analysts and as teachers, when we are giving parents behavior plans or strategies or advice to follow, they have to be realistic, first of all. They have to be things that, you know, something we can actually do. And second of all, we have to know 100% that it's not going to be followed all the time. Because it can't be. Like that's not how life is. This isn't a clinic with like a fresh RBT every 90 minutes that has new energy and is ready to go. No, it's not. It's life. And life is messy. And our behavior plans have to account for that. That it's not going to be followed with 100% accuracy. And you know what? It's okay. Here's me, the BCBA, telling you it's okay. Um, And I think we have to give... The parents we support a lot of grace and understanding with this a lot because they already probably feel bad about it they already know that they didn't do what they were supposed to do and maybe have guilt associated to that and they shouldn't because their life is really hard and they're doing the best we can and that's all we as educators and clinicians can expect from them And want for them right is doing the best you can and the best you can do on tuesday may be different than wednesday right and we want to look through as as clinicians and educators making these plans why why was this too hard to follow what can i do to make it something that you can follow more consistently that's our role not judging whether or not they were able to follow through on boundaries they've held because we've all been there all right last question before this episode is way too long How to manage challenging behaviors and aggression with no para support. So that was all I got with the question. And I'm going to kind of take it two different directions. So if no para support, it could mean that there's literally no paras there. It's just the teachers. Or it could be that paras don't have buy-in. So let me touch on that one first. If the paras don't have buy-in, that should be the first step of your behavior plan. Because the paras are on the front lines. They are the ones implementing this every day. If you don't have buy-in from your paraprofessionals, there is no point to writing that behavior plan. So get the buy-in. That means behavior skills training. That means really spending time building rapport, understanding what their competing contingencies are, what makes these behavior plans too hard to follow. Do they have six kids with them at gym? And no, they can't implement something on a 30-second interval. Yeah, right. Figure out that. Develop that rapport with those staff members and really figure out what's going on. That could be scenario one. You don't have buy-in. Well, you got to get buy-in because you're not going to get to the behavior plan if you don't. The second scenario could be that you literally have no para support. Like there's no paras there, right? We are in a state of education and special education right now where schools across the country are chronically understaffed. And I used to say this like five years ago that everyone was understaffed and that's like hilarious that I said it five years ago because now now we're really understaffed, right? We're like going to Target and just like grabbing someone off the Target floor and being like, hey, will you work as a para? Please come here, work here. There are so few staff members available and applicants available. If you're an administrator, you know this. So if there's literally no para support, then whoever is creating that behavior plan or those tools, it has to be something that the teacher can implement in a busy overcrowded classroom and you want to really prioritize. We can't have a behavior plan for five kids in one gen classroom with one teacher. It's not going to happen. Prioritize the most extreme disruptive behaviors. Prioritize proactive antecedent-based interventions because that's where we'll get the biggest wins is just preventing the problem behaviors before they start. Once they start, it's kind of over, right? We're just in reaction mode, response mode. But if we can add in some really powerful antecedent-based interventions, those could be the biggest wins for that teacher. So looking at what's reasonable and what they can actually accomplish with being short-staffed. All right, look at that. Frequently asked questions on behavior in around 20 minutes. Refer back to answer number one is gonna be my continuous answer. We want that FBA. We want that behavior plan that incorporates replacement behaviors. Um, I'll refer you to that positive behavior change course again because behavior is complicated. That's why I have a whole course on it. And that's why I spend, you know, multiple, multiple days a year talking with school districts and at conferences about behavior change because it's not easy. If it was easy, it would have been done already, right? You wouldn't be listening to a podcast on behavior because you need new ideas. It's complicated. And man, if you feel the pressure of that, please know you are not alone. It is it is absolutely not easy. So Check out that course. There's a free webinar all about reinforcement and bribery that's really, really great because reinforcement is really at the core of everything. Um, And reach out. Continue to reach out with your frequently asked questions. I might say FBA. You you just know that that might be my answer. But continue to reach out with those behavior questions because I love answering them. Thanks for listening to the Autism Helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback.